Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought us together today on this Easter Sunday um, for us to be able to celebrate and remember uh, the first Easter Sunday where your son was uh, raised from the dead by your power. And we thank you that we have a chance today to reflect on the impact that that has on us as we look at this wonderful passage in Scripture, as we continue on our sermon series in this wonderful book uh, of Romans. We thank you that uh, for those of us who are able to witness the baptism of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're able to witness what Easter weekend is about, to be able to see how the death and resurrection of Jesus impacts each of us individually who put our faith in him. And we pray today as we look into this new life that we have in Christ, this life in the Spirit, uh, you would give us great encouragement uh, and assurance uh, from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I often desire change uh, in my life, right? some transformation to happen, especially in areas of my life in which it feels like it stubbornly is staying the same, or in areas of my life which just aren't as great as I'd like it to be. Now, it would be fair to say that we all desire change in something in our lives, in some area, a change that will make us happier, a change that would uh, make us more satisfied, and maybe with who we are or what we have, or what we're doing in life. Maybe some of you here feel like you're trapped uh, in a dead-end job, or stuck in unemployment. Uh, Maybe some of you here are trapped in unhealthy relationships, uh, maybe with your family members or with a significant other. Or maybe some of you here desire a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, maybe children that you've been hoping to have for a while now. Some of us want to change where we live and how we live, And others of us want change right to the very core of our being. Maybe a change in an identity. Maybe there's uh, something about yourself that you really dislike that's in your heart, that's in your life. Maybe there is guilt uh, that you feel stuck in, that you can't move on from. Or maybe there is a sinful desire, a brokenness that is so, so deep and so destructive that you wish you could get out of. I think it would be fair to say that in some way, shape, or form in our lives, we want change. But it's also fair to say that sometimes it seems impossible to have that change. It would seem that sometimes transformation seems so far out of our reach. Now, the Christian faith offers a transformation that will impact all of these desires for change. Uh, the, the, The gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection offers us a transformation that goes beyond uh, and above all of these struggles, all of these trap, trappings, all these uh, captivities that we feel that we are under, for it offers a change that goes beyond this life, and it will have an impact beyond this life. But it's an impact even in the present, as we'll see in this passage. The events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday are about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it didn't just impact one person, Jesus Christ, but his death and resurrection impacted humanity and impacts eternity. It's a transformation power of the death and resurrection of Jesus that is made available to all of us. And we're going to hear about that this, this morning. Now, this is expressed in our passage that we just heard read out to us in Romans 8. It brings together for us the thread of the previous chapters. And it summarizes for us the glorious transformation that is given to those who are united with Christ by faith. And this new and radically transformed life is called life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. And it's a huge contrast to what we were before we were in Christ 
with this new life in the Spirit to what we are now, now that we have life in Christ, life in the Spirit. Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, I really want you to ask yourself, as we go through this passage, as you look at this before and after, to ask yourself, which side of this ledger do I want to be on? Which side of life do I want to be on? And if you are a believer here this morning, I would love for you to take in just how radical and reassuring and motivating it is to know how great a transformation that has already happened to you that is currently happening in you and that will continue to happen to you. Great encouragement for us this morning. Now, as Paul, as we get into this chapter, Paul takes the message of Romans up to this point and crystallizes it with a glorious statement that we read in verse 1. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you've been here with us over the last few weeks, the last couple of months since we began this sermon series. You will know that there certainly was condemnation for us as human beings before God. Certainly was condemnation. We were under the condemnation of sin and death, weren't we? Paul had issued the charge from the beginning of this letter that, was, uh, that, that every single human being uh, is guilty of. That even though we are created by our Creator, we ignore our Creator. We replace the true gods with idols that we make with our hands and with our hearts. We succumb to wicked and godless living. And even for the very religious people, even like the Jews, they were plagued with self-righteousness and hypocrisy that made them hateful before God. And we saw that whether it is against the law of God or even the, the moral compass of our own hearts, we stand guilty before God. We fail and we fall far short. And we saw that humanity as a whole is guilty as charged. In the law court of God, we stood condemned. That was before. But now, in Christ Jesus, we are not condemned. That has been the good news of the previous four chapters, isn't it? This is chapter 3, we've seen that. In Christ. Have a look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now here in verse 2 and 3, we see another case of a before and after. The reason we were condemned before is because we were under this thing called the law of sin and death. But now we have been set free uh, by the law of the spirit of life uh, in Christ Jesus. It's before, trapped in this thing called the law of sin and death, but now we've been set free by the law of the spirit of life. Now it's a bit confusing here because in verse 3, the law is talking about the law of God. But here in verse 2, this law doesn't mean the law of God. It means more like a principle or a rule, like the, the law of gravity. Right? We think of it as a power. In the past, before, we were under the power of sin and death. We were trapped. And it used the law of God, the good law of God, and it made it even worse because it showed up, it, shed a, it pointed a spotlight on how sinful we are, and in doing that, it also served to condemn us for our sinfulness before God. We saw last week that the law has no power to save us. It doesn't even have the power to help us to obey God because we were powerless and the law's function was also powerless to to change us. 
But we see here that God is powerful. And we are powerless, the law is powerless, but God is powerful. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to set us free. A new power is ruling, the power of the spirit of life. In some versions, it says the life-giving spirit, the power of the life-giving spirit. You see in verse uh, 2 and 3 here, this is an amazing trinity at work, isn't it? God the Father sending Christ his Son. And with the Spirit's work of uniting us to salvation in Christ, we have transformation from death to life. This transformation from death to life. We see that God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful human flesh. Kind of a funny way of describing Jesus, isn't it? It's only the likeness of sinful flesh because he wasn't sinful. And yet he was fully human. Likeness of sinful human flesh. In order that he might qualify to be our representative as the one who is fully human, but also qualified to be our substitute because he was sinless in his flesh. God sent him to pay for the penalty of our sins as we've been hearing this entire weekend. Now, why, uh, what happened then is that we see that we were condemned and Jesus was not because he's sinless, but he was condemned in our place so that we don't have to be, right? He was condemned in the flesh so that we don't have to be. Now, the question we can ask is, why did Jesus do this? For what reason did Jesus die? And we see this in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk according, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here in verse 4, it says that Jesus died. Why? To fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. Now, what does this mean? Well, the first thing it definitely must mean is that Jesus died for the righteous requirement of the law, which is the penalty of death for our sins. Right, we heard about that. For the wages of sin is death. When you reject and you rebel and you sin against the, the God who gives us life, then the just punishment for that is death. And we're told that Jesus pays for our penalty of death, our condemnation. So that's what it means. But I think it also means more than that. Jesus didn't just come to justify us. Jesus came to give us the power to live a new life. Right? Paul adds a positive flavor to this fulfillment here in verse 4 by talking about how this power, this fulfillment is given to those who don't just walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. Not only has Christ fulfilled the just condemnation of the law, he also fulfilled the power to be able to live righteously. Now we saw before, didn't we, that no one had the power to live righteously. The history of humanity is just this failing after failing to live righteously before God. We heard about this in the Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 36. In a way, it's a summary of the failings of God's people since the beginning, since Adam. And no matter how hard humanity tried, they just could not obey God and live righteously. Because the hearts were hard, stubborn, rebellious, broken. And it would take for a promise, a prophecy of God's own spirit to come to soften that heart, to make it alive again, for people to be able to obey God from the heart. Now, through the death of Jesus Christ, this prophecy from way back in Ezekiel 36, from 1,000 years ago, has been fulfilled. For now we have the indwelling spirit. Now, righteous living is possible because, Jesus, because the spirit dwells in us. You see, this is amazing grace that we talk about as Christians. This is the amazing transformation that has been given to us. That God sent Jesus to free us from a life of sin, death, and condemnation. And not only are we justified before God, we can now bear the fruit of a sanctified life. 
We may be made spiritually alive so that we can live spiritually alive. Now, this is what Paul goes on to, to, to do for the rest of the chapter, to spend the rest of this chapter expounding on this new life in the Spirit. If you want to know about whether there's a Holy Spirit chapter in the Bible, this is it. Now, many of you know that the Bible isn't really like a textbook where there are, you know, contents page of items that you can look at. It's books of the Bible written over a 1,500-year period. But if you ever wanted to go and find a chapter on just the Holy Spirit, this is it. The biggest concentration of the mention of the Spirit and the teaching of the Spirit in the entire Bible. Now, the thing is, with Christians, you probably have heard of Christians talk about the Holy Spirit in many, many different ways, in perhaps very confusing ways. And perhaps you've heard Christians talk about the Spirit in the very fantastical ways, in the very charismatic expressions, right? The very, ooh, kind of stuff, right? Speaking in tongues, uh, miraculous powers, signs, and wonders. And maybe you associate the Spirit with a kind of hyper-spiritual reality and presence and manifestations. Now, if that's the kind of communication of the Spirit that you've heard over the years, I think it does gross injustice to the Spirit's proper and glorious work. It obscures what the, the Spirit is mainly doing. Now, the Spirit's work is conveyed, I think, by His full name. His full name is the Holy Spirit, right? Holiness is what the Spirit's on about. He is the Holy Spirit of God who is at work to make us holy people. He's in the business of helping us to live our holy, sanctified lives. In other words, the kind of best life that we were created and saved to live. That's what the, the holy life is. It's not like a party-pooping, boring life. It is the best life that God created and saved for us to live. And the Holy Spirit is involved in helping us live that life. But even more than that, the Holy Spirit is in the business of giving us assurance. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's described as the seal, the guarantee of our salvation, of our inheritance that we will receive in the future. An assurance that is deep and wide. An assurance that mesmerizes and comforts. An assurance that is powerful enough to see us through our battles against sin, through suffering, and through any and everything. The kind of power of the Spirit that helps us to live normal lives. Not just engage in hyper-spiritual lives, but to live normal lives. Filled with assurance and holiness. And that's what we're going to see in this Holy Spirit chapter of the Bible. It's about holiness and about assurance. We're going to start seeing that in this first half of chapter 8 as we look to, the, to verse 17. And then we're going to continue part 2 next week as we see the Spirit's work in the yuckiness of life as we wait for Jesus' return. Verse 5. <clears throat> For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want you to notice again the clear kind of before and after that's in these uh, verses, as we've seen in the previous ones, right? The clear before and after. Right, before, we were trapped in this thing called the flesh, right? We are trapped by our flesh. Now, it's clear that the passage isn't talking about flesh in a literal sense. It's not like skin and muscle. It's talking about flesh 
uh, as a way of life that is driven by uh, a, an old fleshly way of thinking, thinking a, fo- a picture of our fallen humanness, our sin-dominated self. The flesh way of life was driven by a flesh way of thinking, right? thinking that is that's driven by putting ourselves at the center of our lives rather than God. The flesh way of thinking is about putting our desires, our sinful desires, uh, before God. It's about dishonoring God. It's about making decisions that frequently also hurt other people and damage our own lives. This all fleshly, sinful, broken way of thinking and living is something that we couldn't escape from even if we wanted to, even if we tried. And we heard about this last week in chapter 7. The Apostle Paul himself, reflecting on the flesh, the sinful nature that was within him, lamented as to why he couldn't change. Remember him saying, I don't understand my own actions. I don't understand why it is that when I want to do the good things that I want to do, that God gives me to do, I just can't do it. I can't understand why I can't stop doing all the evil, wicked, terrible things that I don't want to do. He cried out, wretched man that I am, because of this sinful nature that was still within him. We see that that was the way it was before. Right? A life of hostility towards God, a life that led to death, as we see here in verse 6. And it reminds us here in verse 7, it wasn't just that we didn't want to, it wasn't a desire problem only. At the end of verse 7 it says, for the mind that's set on the flesh does not submit to God, doesn't want to, indeed it cannot. It's not just a desire problem, it's an ability problem. Even if we wanted to change, we couldn't. And that's why the last couple of chapters has been how the law, right, the, the rules and instructions of God cannot help us change. It doesn't have the power to create a desire in us. And it certainly couldn't create a power to create an ability in us to obey God. That was then. That was the past. But now, in Christ, in the new way of the Spirit, it is different. We're told that we're given a new mind, a new way to think, and therefore a new way to act a new way that is truly life and peace. And we've seen this idea of life and peace before, right? Peace is about a reconciled relationship with God so that we're now able to live the life that He created for us to live. The true best life now is to live God's holy way. With this new mind, it is now possible to think differently and to live differently. Now, I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Right, in that past way, how we could not refuse what we wanted to do, that flesh way of living and thinking. And for those of you who have become Christian, I know you have experienced the transforming power of a new mindset. But for sometimes we forget how powerful that is because it's so gradual, it's so slow, and sometimes there are hiccups along the way. I was talking to a brother recently uh, who had just started in a, uh, in a Christian relationship for the first time because he only became a Christian not long ago. And he was telling me how in the past... He had relationships where he was very free and happy to sleep with his girlfriend without thinking too much about it. Because the old flesh way of thinking is to follow what the world says. You have sexual desires, go fulfill them. It doesn't matter that God tells us that sex is reserved for marriage because it is a glue of intimacy that binds people intimately together. And when it's done outside of marriage, it can destroy relationships. It can destroy people. But that was the way he was before. But he said that now that he's in this new relationship, he actually doesn't have a desire to want to commit this sexual immorality anymore. Not only does he know why it's wrong, he actually believes and understands what God's gift of sex is for. 
And he wants to pursue that in his new relationship. What a change in mindset. There was another lady I was speaking to recently, and she was just speaking in passing about this other lady who was annoying her and, and gave her a big headache because of uh, some things that she was doing. It wasn't really much of a big complaint, just a, just a comment about how she was not feeling too well uh, and not feeling too happy because of the conversation and the interaction we had with this other lady. Anyway, uh, this lady um, walked away, and about 10 minutes later, I got a phone call from her. And she called, and she had this worried voice um, that I could tell over the phone. And she was saying, you know what I said to you before? Do you think I was being harsh? Being too critical? Did I come across being judgmental about this other lady? Which kind of blew my mind because, firstly, I didn't think she, what she said was really that bad. And, but the, worst, the, the, the most amazing thing was that I've known this woman a long time, and she's a pretty bitter, complaining sort of woman. But in that very moment, I saw the spirit mindset. Over decades, slowly at work, changing her, in such that she was concerned about her lips and the state of her heart in this passing comment that she made about another woman. Now, as a pastor, I have the great privilege of hearing many stories from you guys. But not just as a pastor, even just as a brother in this community. To be able to hear the stories of how the Spirit has changed your mindset from your old fleshly way of thinking and living into a new way. Some of your transformations has been phenomenal, profound. And yet others have been slow and steady, but it's still the same transformative, powerful, miraculous work of the Spirit. Now, many of you were part of Dinner of Tens as part of YF over the last couple of weeks. And as part of Dinner of Tens, you're kind of forced to mingle with other people, right? And then you're kind of forced to have this formal sharing period where you share about your life's journey. I love those moments because I get to hear all these stories. These stories of God's powerful work, God's spirit work at, you, at work in you to change your mindset. Now, if you haven't been involved in those conversations before, if you only ever talk about the weather and about sport and what to eat for lunch, can I encourage you at the end of the service, there'll be some questions coming out to ask you to share about how you see this transformative power of a spirit-renewed mind at work in your life and the lives of people around you. Now, this new life in the spirit comes with a new mindset, but it is empowered by a new indwelling. Right? It is empowered by a new indwelling. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now once again, we see another clear case of before and after here, isn't it? For before, we were flesh-powered and flesh-controlled, but now the Spirit has come in and dwells in us. There's a new homeowner. And what do new homeowners do? They renovate, right? And they redecorate. They transform the place to suit their own tastes and lifestyles. We have a new uh, management, right? Under new management. New owners of a business, what do they do? They revamp and they reconfigure and they reprioritize. They come up with a new mission, new values, and a new vision. I'm going to ask you guys, you can answer this in your own mind, are you a believer? Right, it's a simple question, are you a believer? 
Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you be able to have been in that pool saying yes to the questions that Pastor Steve was asking? If that's you, then you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Right? If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Now, why am I making this simple statement like this? Why am I repeating myself so many times? It's because, sadly, there is false teaching going on out there that says that somehow you can receive Christ and believe in Him but not be baptized, not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That somehow there is a gap between when you confess faith to when you get filled with the Spirit. That goes against the clear teaching of Scriptures. What does Paul say in verse uh, verse 9? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. To put it in a positive, if you belong to Christ, then you have the indwelling Spirit. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let false teaching rob you of God's gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you because you believe in Jesus. Don't let anyone rob you of that. Because if the Spirit is in you, then there is power. That's what it's saying here. If the Spirit is in you, then there is power to change. There's transformation. It's possible because the power of the Spirit is dwelling in you. Remember, sin once killed us. Spiritually dead to God and spiritually dead to be able to live a godly life. But the Holy Spirit is making us come alive again. The very Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter is powerfully raising us from the dead right now. You know that? The the power of the Holy Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter is the very same Spirit dwelling in you, bringing you back to life. Justifying you before God but also sanctifying, right? Bringing you back spiritually alive, but also making you be able to live the spiritual life through the power of the Spirit. And it's because this is true that Paul urges us to fight our sin in verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We don't owe sin anything. Sin is our master no more. You have been released. I think it was last week or the week before, Pastor Steve gave us an illustration right, of a man who had grown up in slavery in a, in, a, in a master's house, but he had been released. But then he finds himself walking around the village uh, where the, master also, the old master also lives, and the old master calls out, Hey, boy, come over here. Hey, boy, come, do this and do that. And this guy who had grown up in slavery, he has this urge to obey his previous master, doesn't he? But then he remembers he's not a slave anymore. He has been released. He doesn't have to come here. He doesn't have to do this or do that. You see, we're no longer tied to our sinful flesh that once ruled over us. We don't have to succumb We don't have to give in, and we don't have to give up. We are not powerless to change. We can fight sin, and we can put it to death. 
And I'm saying that as much to you as I'm saying it to myself. Because the reality is, it's hard. The reality is, is that we feel sometimes like we are powerless. Is that right? I mean, I say this, and the, thing, the first question I had in my notes is, then how come I feel powerless? I'm not sure if you guys feel the same way. You know, there are some days, some weeks, some months even, where it feels like, I'm never going to change. There's some sins. It just feels like it's just going to be a lifelong battle. I know a lot of the guys here struggle with pornography. I don't know what it is about men and pornography, but we just can't rid ourselves of it. For other people, it's just such low self-esteem to think of yourself so much worse than you really are. For others, it's maybe our lips, right? They're sharp tongues from a bitter heart. There's just some things you just think we can't change. And then we read here that there's a power of the Spirit at work in us, indwelling in us, changing us. How does that work? What does it mean to have the indwelling Spirit transform us? Does it mean that one day as we're sitting there meditating with our eyes closed, maybe in a forest or by the beach, we'll have this enveloping sense of spiritual power? That's mysticism, and that's not what the Bible teaches, right? It's not like that. That's not how the Spirit works. For we know that the Spirit works with a new mindset, remember? It is through the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, as we're told. The Spirit is powerfully at work through the Word to transform our minds. And it starts with the, the powerful message of the Word of God, which is the gospel. As the gospel becomes alive in us, as we realize how sinful we are and how loving God is, what Jesus did to die for us on the cross, to release us from that slavery, to be raised for our justification, to give us a new life in the Spirit, it transforms us from the inside out as the gospel becomes real to us, not just in our head, but in our heart, in our convictions. And the Bible reveals to us how to love God, how to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And it shows us how we used to love ourselves and how we used to live damaging, destructive, sinful lives. And it says change. And the Spirit takes that knowledge and it transforms us if we allow the Word by the power of the Spirit to be at work within us. I think a lot of times we can't change and we don't change is because we're not people who are really engaged with the Spirit by His Word to transform our mindset, to tap into the power that the Spirit uses of the Word to transform us from the inside out. You see, the work of uh, saving us is entirely a work of God, isn't it? 100%. He initiates, he executes. What about the work of becoming more godly? It's also 100% God. Because it's his gift of the Spirit that's transforming us. But it's also 100% us. Which is why Paul says, put to death the sins of your flesh. 100% God, 100% us. Heavenly mathematics, right? Figure that one out. Now, all of this is driven by great assurance. And that's what we're going to finish. In these last four verses, it's all about the context of great assurance in which we pursue this life in the Spirit. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, the Spirit is talking to you right now. 
Uh, and it's not an audible voice, but he's testifying. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, the Spirit who dwells in you is testifying, comforting you, reminding you of the fact that you are children of God. You are a child of God. With the Spirit inside, we can call on God, Abba. Uh, not the Swedish rock band, Abba. I wish they hadn't called themselves that. Because the word Abba is Hebrew for daddy, papa, appa. Whatever intimate phrase you use to call your dad is what we are allowed to call our Heavenly Father. It was never possible to do that in the Old Testament. The Old Testament people of God could not call God that. The only person that could start calling God that was Jesus, the Son of God. Remember in Garden of Gethsemane, he cried to God, Abba, Father, if it be your will. And now he says that through his spirit dwelling in us, we can call God the same way, the same intimate way, Abba, Father. See, as children of God, we are being led by the Spirit. As children of God, we fight sin not out of fear of judgment, like we did before when it came to the law, but we fight sin with the assurance and the joy of adoption. Not out of fear of judgment as slaves, but out of the joy and peace of adoption as children. You see, we strive to live as children of Abba Father because we are our Father's children. Not because we have to, not because we're being forced like slaves to act a certain way. Now, as uh, I look around the room, I realize that a lot of you probably don't know uh, how Faith and I got started. Uh, I was going to say most of you should know the story, but I don't think you do, right? Faith and I uh, met in October 2002 for the first time ever, and then we got engaged secretly in December 2002. We got engaged publicly in April 2003. And we got married in June 2003. So if you do your maths, what's that? Eight months, right? Meet and marry. Don't waste time, okay? <laughs> now, we, we met and married in eight months. And uh, we, in that eight months, we, we felt like we got to know each other well enough to be able to make that commitment. But obviously, in eight months, you can't really get to know that much about each other. And so on our honeymoon, on our first day, we were in the Blue Mountains, uh, the Valley of the Blue Mountains, and we were walking along, and I said, hey, I don't actually know your favorite color and your favorite food. And so we had our first conversation about all those mundane things. And I can't remember what her favorite color was at the time, um, but I know the favorite food was something to do with Singaporean food. And so we drove an hour and a half to Parramatta to a Singaporean restaurant on our honeymoon to eat uh, Singaporean food. Now, one of the downsides of getting married when you're only uh, known each other for eight months is that you don't really know each other's deep faults, right? So for those of you who are dating, um, you only get to know each other really well after a longer period of time. And so in our marriage, in our first year especially, there was a lot of fights, right? We, we argued a lot because we didn't really know each other that well in some areas of our lives, especially in the faults that's easy to hide when you're dating, that's one of the downsides of getting married so young and so short a period of time. But the upside of being married is security. Security. Now, as we fought, and we fought sometimes for a long time, we were the kind of people who didn't want to go to sleep before we resolved it. So sometimes we fought until 4 or 5 in the morning. Uh, we even skipped Bible study sometimes because we were in the middle of a fight when Bible study started, and we just called up a, you know, a co-leader and said, sorry, we're not coming in. Right? That's how kind of bad some of our fights were initially. But the amazing thing was because we made those commitments to each other on our wedding day, we vowed to each other, 
and that we vow before our family and friends, and we vow before God that we will be committed to this marriage, there was this ridiculous sense of security. And dare I say, even peace. As we battled over whatever issues we were discussing and fighting over, as we struggle and fight against our own sinfulness and inadequacies and, and the problems in our marriage, there was this ridiculous amount of security and assurance because we had made these commitments to one another. Now, I can't tell you how, how grateful I was in that first year especially to have that security. Because can you imagine what it would be like having those kind of fights when you're only dating? And you're wondering always when it will be that next problem that will break us up. I never had that in our fights. Now, when it comes to living the new life in the Spirit, when it comes to fighting our sinful flesh, the Spirit is bearing witness that we have an assurance and security that's beyond whatever human vows of marriage that Faith and I made or any other couple makes. A level of security and witness that comes from God himself. Not two flawed human beings. I mean, Faith and I could have got divorced if we wanted to, I suppose. But when it comes to God, he doesn't disown us as we fight to battle sin in our lives. There's that assurance and that security. And many of us know stories of wayward children, and no matter how far they strayed, if a parent is loving, whenever they turn around, they can always come back. There is never that fear of judgment. There is that just deep, abiding sense of security and assurance as we go about trying to please God as children of Abba Father. So I want to ask you this morning, right? do, do you know this assurance and security that you have as a child of God? Can you honestly say that you have this deep peace even when you're failing in sin? Even when your struggles seem insurmountable, even when it seems that transformation looks far, far away and you keep displeasing God, do you have this deep sense of assurance and security? I hope you do. I hope that if you're a genuine believer in Christ and you know you're a sinner who's saved by grace in Jesus, that you will know the indwelling spirit that testifies to you at every moment, whether you're sitting or living a holy life, that you are a child of God. You won't hear a voice. And if you start hearing voices, you probably should go see a doctor. But if it's a kind of a voice, it's okay, that tells you that you are God's child, then it's great. You won't necessarily get a feeling of peace that washes over you. But yet you can know peace because God's word is sure. Now, whether you're not a believer here or whether you are a believer here this morning, I'm certain that in some way, shape, or form, you are seeking a change in your life. And maybe this morning in God's Word, it's actually saying to you that there needs to be a change that you didn't even know you needed to make. For you were, you are, if you are outside of Christ, condemned. And you need to be not condemned. You need to receive His forgiveness. You need this new life. Rather than that broken, sinful one that will lead to death, you need that transformation to live God's way. God offers that transformation power in the gospel. The power to be released from condemnation. The power to overcome the sinful, destructive desires of the flesh. The resurrection power to restore our life with God and the life of godliness before God. God gives us that power through Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. He gives us that power by giving us the spirit 
His Spirit to dwell in us. On this Easter Sunday, I hope you will come to really trust and believe in this resurrection power that you can have by believing in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you that out of your great love, you sent your Son in the likeness of sinful human flesh to take our place, to be our representative and our substitute. That even though we deserve to be condemned and judged for our sin and rebellion against you, yet Jesus was condemned in our place so that we no longer have to be. And we thank you that because we have Uh, Christ dwelling in us, we have your spirit dwelling in us as well. The spirit that is transforming our mind from our old ways of the flesh. Spirit that is dwelling in us, giving us life from the inside. We do pray, Father, that you help us to see why it is that we struggle so much to change. That you help us to know how it is that we can tap into the power of the spirit to bring our faith to life, to bring our godly living to life. As we do this, we pray for your deep, deep assurance uh, to be something that we are sure of because we know that your spirit is in us, testifying to us that we are children, because we know that we can call on you in such an intimate way, Abba Father. We thank you that you are 100% at work in saving us, you're 100% at work in transforming us, which enables us to put in 100% to put to death the sins of our body, and to live in obedience to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name.